Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Far too many lawyers that think they're making a speech to a group of 12 people. Really, you're talking to 12 individuals or 14 individuals. You need to have eye contact and you need to relate. And I can't guarantee you, but I'm sure that when I was talking about radar, I was looking at the pilot. But what I try to do is enlist these jurors to become our advocates back in the jury room when they're arguing with the people who might be against us and give them the ammunition that they need to put to rest the arguments that the defense might. And now, your hosts, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise, court is now in session. Well, welcome to the uh, Great Trials podcast. As always, I am uh, your host, Steve Lowry, along with my uh, uh, co-host, uh, the always sharp Yvonne Godfrey. Thank you. Sharp is nice. I was writing down some different words, you know, just to make sure I, could, I didn't always use the same one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Yvonne, so we are here um, uh, today down in the home of Tommy and Debbie Malone uh, in uh, Palm Beach, Florida, and, and we are so uh, excited to, uh, to get to interview Tommy and Adam Malone about uh, some of their great trials that they've uh, that they've worked on. Yeah, there are very few things that will get me up in the morning before like 6 a.m. on a Sunday, <laughs> but this is definitely one of them, so I'm excited. Well, uh, Tommy and Adam, uh, thank you guys so much for being on the show, and, uh, and we appreciate it, and uh, we just uh, love your home, and thank you so much for having us into your home. Well, you're certainly welcome to be here, and we're honored that you would do this, and I need to make one correction right away. I've used to tell people I was from Palm Beach, and then I realized with uh, Trump over there and all the rich <laughs> folks that we're in the redneck area the red, called North red Palm area. Beach. Or, or the, the ghetto area. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was uh, wondering, I, I asked our driver on the way over, I was like, well, so how far are we from Mar-a-Lago? Because I thought we were somewhere close Long to way. it. Long way. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the best. Right, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, at first I told Yvonne that we were going to Mar-a-Lago, and uh, <laughs> she got a little nervous. <laughs> Me too. Um, well, so the case that we're talking about uh, today is the Yamada versus Northside Hospital, Northside Pediatric and Adolescent Group and Women's Health Group. Uh, the case was tried back in 2006 in Fulton County, Georgia, and it resulted in a uh, $16.5 million uh, verdict, uh, which is obviously uh, a fantastic verdict. I'm going to brag on you two a little bit because uh, we want to make sure all of our listeners know who exactly we're talking to. And uh, and so, Tommy, I'll start with you. So, Yvonne, Tommy has been doing this uh, longer than I've been alive and with great success. Again, we're so honored. But um, I was thinking as I was looking at your resume, Tommy, that, you know, some lawyers, you know, write books. Uh, a few lawyers have books written about them, and then even few lawyers have awards named after them, and you have all three of those. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Tommy has written several books. The one that, that I'm the most familiar with and most Georgia lawyers are most familiar with is his book on voir dire and summation, which, you know, especially when I was starting out in Young Lawyers, it's a, just a great book to read, uh, to figure out the process, what you need to do, and, and when you're starting to get ready for trial, it's always good to go back and, and read that book. Tommy, you've had uh, a, a book written about you, Tommy Malone, Trial Lawyer. It's uh, so good. It's, it is such a good book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we both read it and, uh, and just really enjoy it. 
and you've even had an award named after you, which is called the uh, Great American Eagle Award, the Tommy Malone Great American Eagle Award by, uh, by the Southern Trial Lawyers, which is a, a fantastic group. And, and then I'm just going to touch on a couple of your other accomplishments. You have been the president of the American Board of Professional Liability, named in Best Lawyers of America numerous times. You're part of uh, Law Dragon 500, which is the top 500 lawyers across the nation, across all practice areas, so it's a very uh, small group. Uh, the president of the Southern Trial Lawyers Association, and then I could go on and on, Tommy, you have uh, had a fantastic career, and uh, so it's a real honor for us to, to be able to sit here and talk with you about some of your trial experiences. I have been blessed with a wonderful career yeah. and the ability to help a lot of people. And, and, I, and I just got to say on a personal note, and you don't know this, Tommy, but uh, I'm not originally from Georgia, and so when I came to Georgia, I didn't know a soul. You know, trying to sort of make your way and figure out what you're, you're doing, I you know had the great opportunity to work with some great lawyers. And when you hear of somebody like Tommy Malone and his status, you might think that he's unapproachable or he's uh, somebody who uh, doesn't have time for some young lawyer who doesn't know anybody in his, uh, uh, but that from the very first moment I ever met Tommy, they were always just so friendly, kind, generous, and, uh, and just welcoming and just uh, sharing knowledge and sharing what they've done and helping teach others. And so uh, I, on a personal note, I've always appreciated that. Well, thank you. There's no greater reward, Adam will agree, uh, than giving back to others. Yeah. And they say a candle loses nothing by lighting another. Right, that's right. That's a great saying. I love that. All right, so Tommy, uh, we could go on and on forever talking about your accomplishments. And Adam, uh, and I guess I should say, if it's not clear, uh, Tommy and Adam are father and son. They're in the same uh, law practice, Malone Law. Uh, and it's uh, if anybody wants to look them up, it's MaloneLaw.com. Um, but... Uh, but Adam, uh, I think you and I started practicing around the same time, about 20 years or so. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. I know. And, and, and Adam has had uh, fantastic uh, accomplishments as well as, uh, you know, one uh, being named as one of the top 10 lawyers in the state by super lawyers, uh, being named in Best Lawyers of America, even, in, even being named Lawyer of the Year for Medical Negligence Cases by Best Lawyers of America. Um, and, you know, and I meant to ask this, Savannah, and I totally screwed up, but uh, remind me of the name of your case that struck down the cap on non-economic damages. That was called Nesselhut. Nesselhut. I knew it. I, you know, I knew as soon as you said it, I, I should have known it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, I mean, I mean, not only uh, receiving great awards, but doing work that, uh, that helps all of our clients, uh, helps, uh, you know, lawyers around the state, uh, you know, uh, in one of the only states in the nation uh, that had caps that actually had them struck down as being unconstitutional. That's right. Um, so needless to say, Adam is a, a, an AV-rated lawyer. Uh, he's, he's been the president of a number of associations, including the Southern Trial Lawyers Association and the Melvin Belli Society, uh, and has been on multiple uh, 40 under 40 or lawyers to watch uh, under 40, even though, Adam, I know you and I are now over 40. I don't qualify for that anymore. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, but it, it just, it, you know, had a fantastic career and will continue to have a fantastic career. So, uh, so thank you, Adam. 
Well, thank you for having both of us on your show. And I should say, if you don't mind me interrupting, yeah. there's no prouder daddy than me. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And no prouder son. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, should we start, uh, Vaughn, talking about the, uh, the Yamada case? Yeah. So I'm going to do my best to go over some of the basic facts of this, and you guys uh, can correct me where I make mistakes. Yamada involved a baby, Brooke Yamada, who was born in 2003, and uh, before she was born, there had been s several ultrasounds, and the ultrasounds were suspicious for an abdominal cyst, uh, and that had come across on, on all of the ultrasounds. An abdominal cyst is a life-threatening uh, situation, and it's something that has to be taken very seriously. And my understanding of the evidence was is that all of the doctors prior to the birth of uh, Brooke told her that we'll continue to follow, told uh, Mina, uh, Brooke's mom, that we'll continue to follow this and that um, we won't let Brooke leave the hospital without taking care of this abdominal cyst. And so time comes for Mina to have the baby. She has, uh, has Brooke and nobody, from my take on it, nobody seems to be mentioning the abdominal cyst. Um, except for Mina. Right, except for Mina, right. She, she mentioned it like, you know, it, don't we have to do something about this abdominal cyst? And uh, essentially what it sounded like is that she was told everything's fine. Uh, and go home. And so she, following the orders of her uh, doctors, uh, did that. And then over the months, uh, Brooke was not doing well, was not eating well. And it took them about four months, it sounded like, before they went to another pediatrician who eventually said, well, whatever happened on this abdominal cyst? And uh, at that point, recognized that uh, nothing had been done about the abdominal cyst, that it was life-threatening, and, um, and that Brooke uh, was in liver failure and ultimately needed to have a liver transplant because of that. Uh, and I know I've cut through a lot of facts about that case, but that's the basic facts uh, of that case. Is that yeah, and I think one that everybody knows if they think about it, uh, they'd realize it, but the ultrasound is done while the baby is in the mother's womb before birth. Right. And what the uh, a pediatric uh, radiologist or the obstetrical radiologist was recommending is when the baby is born, do imaging of the baby outside of the mother's womb because you'd be able to get a better look. Right. And that's what she was told was going to happen. That's what the OBs had in her record, but they didn't put it in the baby's record. And the pediatrician, when they come, there are three different pediatricians involved in this, and they didn't look at the mother's record. They only looked at the baby's record. Okay. Nothing in there about a cyst. And Mina was asking them, every one of them, she asked them, how are things with the baby and that sort of thing. I don't think she ever said abdominal cyst right. because she knew that that was what they were all focused on. Right. And, and sorry, go ahead, Adam. So, you know, in, uh, at its essence, what this case was about was the failure of corporate medicine and the way it's practiced in modern America with electronic medical records, multiple health care providers um, involved with caring for the same patient, handoff of information, communication failures, um, and that sort of thing that didn't exist prior to uh, 
the advent or rise of corporate medicine in America. And so everybody knew prenatally that there was a suspicious mass and there was a plan put in place. That's what's important. The plan was follow the cyst because they needed to follow it prenatally to see if it was changing. And it wasn't changing, and that's the reason for the serial ultrasounds. And she went um, at regular intervals from the moment it was first um, seen all the way up through September the 30th when Brooke was born. The ultrasound reports were sent serially to the obstetrician's office. There was regular communication between the perinatologist that did the ultrasounds and the obstetrician, and they stayed on top of that plan. Um, Shortly before Mina presented to Northside Hospital for the delivery of Brooke, the entire prenatal record, including those ultrasound reports, were faxed over to the hospital so that they became a part of the permanent hospital record. And so the information was there. And, but as you may know, um, there are two patients involved here. There's right. Mina and then there's the baby. And the baby had a permanent record prior to the baby exiting the birth canal being born. And that was part of the mother's record then. So Brooke was born. There was no complications associated whatsoever with the labor and the delivery. Uh, Mina is recovering um, in the, uh, they've now moved her to the recovery unit. I forget what they call it. But, you know, and Northside, it's important to mention Northside Hospital at the time and may still be the baby birthing center of the Southeast United States, delivers more babies than any other hospital in the area. So that's one of the reasons that the Yamadas chose that place. And, and they make it almost like a spa experience right. when you deliver babies there because the rooms are large, they're very comfortable, the, the lighting is um, uh, mood appropriate uh, to try yeah. and keep you comfortable and relaxed. Uh, there are recliners in the rooms for the family to rest while the mother does all the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so um, Mina is recovering and the pediatrician that she had met prior to uh, Brooke's birth, because a lot of mothers do that these days, they go and meet the pediatrician before the baby's born so they can establish the relationship. She had met with a pediatrician named Dr. Winter, who was head of the practice group. Well, he wasn't on call the day that Brooke was born, so another member of that group that Mina had never met stopped by the room, and Mina did say, how's Brooke, what about the cyst? She mentioned that specifically to, to him. And the response at that time was, we need to do a couple more tests, but everything looks good. Well, that's what she wanted to hear. The next day, a different pediatrician comes by who she had also never met. Um, and unknown to her at the time, uh, had not communicated with Dr. Winter, had not communicated with the pediatrician the day before. So this is a brand new encounter for this doctor and the patient, Mina, at the time. And she says, how did the test turn out? The response was, you did great, you're a great mom, the baby is completely normal, everything is fine. Exactly what they wanted to hear. Um, and they knew that the plan was a direct ultrasound um, on Brooke to evaluate, is this cyst a problem or not, before she ever left the hospital. Mm -hmm. So they're allowed to go home and they think they have a healthy baby. Over the next few weeks, the baby starts having problems with feeding passing white stools, which is very abnormal. Right. And um, the unknown to them, the pediatricians were completely unaware, did not know that there was a 
suspicion of a cyst or the presence of a cyst. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. So at this at this point when she's gone home with the baby, she thinks they've already had the post-birth ultrasound and everything looked okay. Because that's what she, she asked that question and that's what she was told. Okay. And significantly and unknown to her because patients don't ever get handed their own medical record and asked to review it for accuracy ever so she's unaware of what's in the medical record and what's not in the medical record but as soon as Brooke is born a new record is created for Brooke information from the maternal record from Mina's record should have been transferred about Brooke into Brooke's record the prenatal ultrasound information and the suspicion of the cyst and the plan to follow it was never transferred. And the responsibility for doing that is the hospitals, the nurses, and they did not do that. So no one communicated directly with the nurses from the obstetrical practice to make sure that the information did get transferred. Uh, Once the baby was born, the obstetrician was out of the picture. Now the pediatrician comes on board, and the nurses were the only connection between the obstetrical care and the pediatric care, and they dropped the ball. The pediatricians never went and bothered to look at the mother's record to make sure that pertinent information about Brooke made its way into their patient's record, which was now the baby. Um, And this is completely unknown and the way medicine is practiced and critical information is handled is completely unknown to Mina, who, by the way, was a very highly educated uh, young mother along with her husband, Taka. And in fact, Mina was a communications major and had a degree in communication. So she knew how to communicate. Her ability to communicate should never have been in question, although all three defendants blamed mom for not asking more questions. Which is just so so shocking. I think more and more people can relate to that from the patient perspective where you have this level of trust and deference to your health care providers. You don't want to be, I mean, I've been in that situation recently. You don't want to be 
too annoying or too pushy because number one that you think of them as the experts and you think well they have to they have to know about x issue you know a drug allergy or a complication or whatever because i know i told somebody so i know it's in my records so they must know about it and it's just as you pointed out with corporate medicine and the way things are changing i think more and more patients can relate to that that feeling of of that of trust that that's not really um it doesn't play out like they expect and i'm sure we'll talk about what your jury thought about that as a defense um well it's interesting you mentioned the word trust because that's at the foundation of every physician and patient relationship and ultimately all these cases in my view and and dad may have a different one um, but in my view and my experience result from a betrayal of that trust and what always gets under my skin in cases like this one is that the health care providers blame the patient for not asking more questions after the health care provider that the patient trusted gives them the very information that they were hoping to hear. Right. I mean, how many people get the information they're hoping to hear and then expect that they have an obligation to go get a second opinion to find out if that was wrong? I mean, you get a second opinion when you get bad news. Right. Yeah. When you get good news, you know, very few people would continue the search to hear the bad news. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess from the from a trial standpoint, I mean, if once she asks, well, what about the cyst? And then they come back and say, well, everything looks fine. I mean, what else is she supposed to do at that point? I mean, they told her it's fine. That was our point. Yeah. But, you know, things didn't stay normal once she got home. Right. But she believed that the cyst was not an issue. At first, there were feeding problems. You know, and this this is their first child. So you know that she is uh, very alert to anything that might seem a little out of what she would have expected to be normal. And she is relying totally on pediatricians to help her learn how to be a, a good, careful mom. Um, but she also recognizes that, you know, human beings being human beings sometimes uh, aren't paying attention. And so she, she, she contacted them as much as a reasonably careful mother should be expected to contact a pediatrician. And she went in more often to the office with reports of these problems than most mothers would have. After hearing, you know, you're just just give it some time. Things will kind of settle down. She's learning how to feed. Um, we're not sure about you know these these white stools, but let's give it some time um, until ultimately about two months into Brooke's life, um, she then asks a, a, a different pediatrician. She sees it gets gets provided with a different pediatrician every single time she shows up, and then she says after a couple of months. You know, could this be related to that cyst they were worried about? And the pediatrician says, what cyst? Oh, my gosh. At that time, um, there was a request by the pediatrician's office to the obstetrician's office to get copies of the ultrasound. They were faxed over. And the pediatrician, being busy and probably in a hurry, read the last one. Uh, where it mentioned the plan to follow up on the, uh, the abdominal cyst, uh, but it also identified another suspicious area in the, um, in the abdomen around the digestive tract that said probable normal variant. 
And that's all the pediatrician read, and he wrote um, suspicion of a cyst, normal variant, and then concluded that there was no other reason to do anything. And so the rest of the assembly line of pediatricians that would see Brooke and Mina on subsequent visits don't bother to go read for themselves the, uh, the ultrasound reports, but read the last pediatrician's misinterpretation and erroneous interpretation of what the report said and think nothing's wrong. Yeah, it sounded like what I gathered from the opening uh, was that um, that um, he had basically this file of these ultrasounds, read them, and then wrote on the front of the file, you know, probable normal, you know, normal, normal and variant. Um, right. normal variant. And then the rest of the pediatricians just looked at the front cover of that file, or I guess looked in the computer system, and that's just what it what it showed, and never went on to to look beyond that. And Dad, you remember um, by about this time, Mina was getting fed up with the pediatric practice, and she called again. I didn't want to interrupt to bring that out. You go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) She called for the last time, and the pediatric nurse there said, look, you're just a panicky first-time mother. God. Scolded her. Yeah. And scolded her. Oh, that makes my blood boil. If I think about how you would defend this case, and if they've decided that they're going to point out to the, you know, that the mom didn't say enough. I mean, how do they explain that? That the nurse basically tells her to stop calling and you're just panicking. I think the reason we went to trial was all three defendants were comfortable in blaming somebody else. Right, and not and, taking responsibility. And they should have been comfortable blaming somebody else, but that was no defense to them. Right. But they didn't realize that. There are a couple of things I wanted to mention. The obstetricians, They send their records to the hospital before any delivery is about to happen. Well, that's all they do. Because once the baby's born, a new chart is created that they have nothing to do with. That's the pediatrician's record. And the obstetricians never communicated with the pediatricians. The pediatricians never communicated with the obstetricians. And one very, very significant fact in my mind that uh, I don't think was mentioned, Mina, the day she was in the hospital after delivering the baby the day before, got a telephone call from the doctor that's been doing the ultrasounds. And he called her on her phone. That's how close they were and how good a doctor he was in following. He said, Mina, you're not here for your appointment. And she said, well, no, I'm in the hospital. I've had the baby. He said, well, what what was the result of the ultrasound on the baby? And that's why she said to the pediatrician when she came in, what are the tests showing? Now, Adam's memory is better than mine. I don't remember her saying anything about the cyst. I remember her saying, what do the tests show? General things that they should have been aware of, and she had every right to think they were, uh, but but didn't. So one question I had when I was reading this is, it, it, from the way I understood it, this Dr. Winter, who they had actually already seen, he knew about the cyst. Yeah, that's why she went to see him, to it, and so get him I, fully informed. And so my question was, is 
doesn't he ever come back into the picture and say, hey, why aren't we doing something about the cyst? I mean, what, what happened to Dr. Winter? It's, it was a group practice, and Dr. Winter, I think, had some surgery of his own. Okay. And he was kind of out of the picture. But whenever you go to the doctor and you know that your chart is on the door in that little container and you're in the room and you think that the doctor who walks in is familiar with your record, he might be familiar with the first two pages, with the last two pages, but he, that doctor was so careful that he called her when she missed her appointment. That's how concerned he was. Well, he was one of the most concerned. He was a good witness for us, and all he did was come tell the truth. We didn't ask him departure from the standard of care questions and stuff, because in this case, I think the facts cried out and to have somebody say it was a departure from the standard of care for them to fail to do this or that, it's essential you ask it, but I don't think it was really necessary. I think the jury got it yeah. from, the, from the basic facts. And so maybe the takeaway for the rest of us from what happened in this case is read your own medical record. Right. You know, if you're at the doctor's office and you see your medical record in that little container outside your door, pick it up and look at it yourself. And you may be surprised and shocked to see what's not there yeah. or what is there that's wrong. You know, the problem with that, you know, from a, from a uh, patient standpoint is I'm not sure they would know what they're looking for or know where to look. And they may just assume, okay, I looked at it and I just didn't look in the right place. And that's why I didn't see it there. So she gets told that she's a panicky first time mom and she hung up the phone and she looked at her husband and said, I've had it. Yeah. We've got to go somewhere else. Well, it's not easy to just show up at a new practice when you've been followed by one for the child's entire life, you know, which is only about three months at this time. But a nurse friend or somebody that was involved in helping them got them an appointment pretty quickly with another pediatrician. Now this pediatrician had no records from of any source or anywhere. So all she had was the information that Mina was now bringing her, which was the total amount that Mina, of course, knew from her own experience. Well, that caused the doctor to do an ultrasound. And uh, uh, at that visit, the cyst was there. And not only that, um, they discovered that now the child's liver was very, very sick, and she was actually in liver failure, so she went immediately to the hospital. Her abdomen was blown up like a balloon from all the backed-up fluid, and the liver was not draining properly because the cyst obstructed the flow of the bile as it normally should. Um, and the bile backed up and poisoned the liver and, right. and killed this little baby's uh, liver. Her bile ducts had disintegrated. Yeah, we're just gone. Gone by this time. It, and it, so this, this wound up uh, causing her to have to undergo a liver transplant at only four months of age. You know, one of the things, you know, in all medical malpractice cases, you know, you have to be uh, part teacher. And that's why these cases can be so difficult, not just because you're suing you know, usually a, a medical provider who, you know, holds an elevated place in the local community and are, and are respected. But, um, you know, you've got to explain the medicine and you've got to explain the legal terms. And I was just thinking when you were talking about, uh, you know, one thing I skipped over is maybe explain to our listeners, you know, what exactly the liver does and why it's so important when it stops functioning. I'm going to ask dad to answer that question because, but I want to, I want to give you a You'll probably ask us about some trial strategy and right. maybe how we divided 
um, responsibility at the trial, but um, I feel so privileged to have been able to be trained by uh, this guy who's my hero and right. who I think is a master of all things, especially <laughs> explaining difficult concepts to people that maybe don't even want to learn about it, right. <laughs> you know, like jurors who are subpoenaed to be there and had right. other things that they would rather be doing right. and make it very interesting and engaging. So my role, um, as I saw it most of the time, uh, was to keep the jury focused on the human story of the case. And, and Dad's role um, as the uh, professor uh, between the two of us was to explain the difficult concepts and handle those witnesses. So um, uh, Steve's asked, uh, how do we explain this stuff? Well, you reduce it to its uh, simplest terms uh, that are unquestionably accurate. Right. And uh, one thing every plaintiff's lawyer needs to know is if words come out of their mouth and I say wherever, like here, anywhere, they ought to be the truth. Yeah. You know, and they have to be the truth when you're uttering them in front of a jury, otherwise they'll get blown up on you. Yeah. You know, so uh, what does the liver do? The liver's the filter, you know, to get all the bad stuff, you know, out of your blood. And so you can't live without a liver. You know, so um, uh, that 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 was critical. I think I think the jury understood before we even started how important a liver was to you, and um, the the failures on the part of all three. And it was really important to have all three of those defendants there pointing the finger at each other, and and they did, and they did. And so uh, I was able to say I think I read over the opening statement. I didn't read the summation. But I think I even said in the opening statement, I agree with every one of the defense lawyers. You know, the other ones were responsible. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. So who were the, so who were the three different defendants that y'all had once you got to trial? The obstetricians group, the uh, pediatricians group, and the hospital. Okay. Failure on the part of the hospital <clears throat> to transfer the information to the pediatri pediatric record failure of the pediatricians to pay attention to things, failure of the obstetricians to let the pediatricians know. Right. You know? And from, from the hospital's perspective, um, you know, talking about um, corporate medicine and the issues with electronic medical records, were they, um, was it their position that the way that they kind of failed to transfer those sort of prenatal records to the post-birth records, that that was just how they do things? Or were they willing to say, we messed up, that that should have made it into the baby's Nobody records? Nobody was willing to say they messed up, <laughs> which really helped us. That I does. Think. Yeah, that does. The person said the pediatricians should have looked at the mother's chart. So, but, okay. but, it, but in reality, that never happens. Right. Pediatricians right. don't go look in any chart except for the baby's chart. Well, okay. why, don't, why don't we rush ahead, because I think it's appropriate now, and Adam can tell you, we were standing there um, after, the verdict. after the verdict, and one of the uh, jurors is talking to us, and one of the uh, obstetricians comes up to the juror and says, What more do you think we could have done? You're kidding. Wow. Yeah, just it's just like still, that in that tone. And yeah. the juror turned and looked at the defendant obstetrician and said, A telephone call would have been nice. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> well, I got and, chills. And it's so simple. So you, said that, that yeah. you said that you had never worked with these pediatricians before. Yeah. 
Yeah. So a telephone call would have been nice. And I think everybody focuses on their role. Yeah. And they don't focus on the interaction of their role with the next person down the line or the other person that needs to know. And uh, this may have been the beginning of medical records, but I didn't look at it so much as an electronic medical record case as I did um, paper records. It was because, the system they had in place. Yeah, yeah, because the system was the obstetricians give the records all they've got to the hospital. And that is in the only patient that exists at that time. Right. Because if there had been a miscarriage before she ever came to the hospital to deliver, there never would have been a reason to have a patient record. Right. They don't get a patient record on the baby until the baby's born. And then they had no practice of getting the mother, the baby's information from the mother's record because I guess most of the time there's not any particular baby information in the mother's record, you know, 99% of the time, right. I'll say. So uh, the pediatricians and the fact that there were three different pediatricians involved, you know, was compounding this whole thing as it goes into explaining why when she asks the one on the first day a question and then the next day she sees another pediatrician and she asks them the same question, they give the same answers but different involvement, if you will. Right. right. Let, let me make a couple of um, or highlight a couple of points that I think Dad has just made. Um, he said that in these cases, each defendant focuses really myopically on what was their role? Well, if I can be so bold as to offer some advice for plaintiff's lawyers that handle these kind of cases, I would, I would say never forget that that's never what the case is about. Right. The case is about what standard of care was the patient entitled to get. And in this case, this baby was entitled to a follow-up test directly on her abdomen before she ever left that hospital. And it makes no difference at the end of the day whether that was the job of the obstetrician or the job of the nurses or the job of the pediatricians. The standard of care, the standard of medical care that the child was entitled to get was the question and the I think whole that, issue. I think that bears repeating or some more emphasis. Every plaintiff lawyer presenting their case should not focus on the departure of the standard of care from the defendant's standpoint right. unless it just flows from fo the primary focus be on what standard of care was the patient entitled to get. And if they didn't get it, then the jury knows it's somebody's fault. Yeah. That's a great point because I think a lot, especially newer lawyers, as you're sort of from the beginning when you're drafting the complaint and you're getting the expert affidavit that you need in Georgia to file a, a medical malpractice case, you're kind of, you can get so focused on what it, what are somebody's professional credentials? What kind of doctor are they? What is the technical standard of care? All this stuff. You can get trapped into thinking about it that way from the, that plays into the defense um, point of view. Well, the defense lawyers will get you confused if you let them. Right in having you believe that um, an expert of one specialty cannot speak to the standard of care that was delivered by 
uh, a doctor of another specialty. But there's significant overlap in medicine, uh, as in this case, between the ob obstetrical standard of care, the nursing standard of care, and the pediatric standard of care. And the, the issue in this case wasn't whether the obstetricians knew how to practice obstetrics or the nurses knew how to practice newborn baby care or the pediatricians knew how to practice um, infant care. It was whether they communicated with each other to make sure a test was done. Right. And, and that, that standard bled over into every other area of specialty. You know, and, and one of the things that I think is interesting in this case sometimes can get lost if you let the, like you say, the defense lawyers complicate the issues. But I mean, the care that was needed was for Brooke. And even if you're going to look at who to blame, even if you look at the mother, and even if she was to blame, the one person you know is can't be to blame is Brooke. And Brooke's the one that needed the care. That's right. Um, and so, to, you know, to, for the defense lawyers to basically say that, that you know, you, sh you should deprive this child of, uh, of prevailing in this case because of a mistake the mother made, well, I mean, that, that's something the law takes care of. The child is still entitled to, to prevail in the case because the child didn't get the care. Well, it's been a deaf and dumb mother that couldn't communicate. Exactly. The baby's still entitled to the same standard of care. Right. And so dad's modesty probably will not allow him to answer more completely your question about how he simplifies right. these complicated issues for the jury. But um, so I'll try yeah. uh, to uh, to pick up where he left off. But and, and he might not remember this, but I do um, on this particular jury. Uh, there was at least one pilot and there were several fishermen. And I think Dad would tell you, you always need to know the audience that you're talking to if you want to explain anything to them. Another great lawyer said one time, and I've always remembered this, if you want to persuade your neighbor of something, you need to go meet him or her on their front porch. Mm -hmm. Don't expect them to come to yours. And, and that's what makes Dad so good is he's, number one, genuine. What you see is what you get, whether you're looking at him in the courtroom or you're looking at him sitting here in this chair or on the back of a boat catching a fish. He's the same person. And he always tells the truth, and he knows how to get his point across. So when he was talking to the jury about what is an ultrasound, he said, you know, if you're a pilot, you have radar on the plane, it sends a signal out and it bounces off of things, it gives you a picture of what's out there. That's what an ultrasound is. Or if you're a fisherman, you've got a transducer on your boat um, uh, that tells you what the depth is and it sends out a sonar signal and bounces off of things That's what an ultrasound is, but it's a, lo a lot more sophisticated in medicine it gives you a much clearer picture And yeah. you, you can't get a better teacher than yeah. somebody who will talk to you that way I remember reading that in the opening and thinking about the, those were great examples I didn't realize that uh, that those are actually very specific examples to the jurors in the case uh, Which really brings it home that's yeah. uh, that's fantastic. I, I was thinking about in this case. Well, you know, let me let me say yeah. this while, while we're on this point. There's far too many lawyers that think they're making a speech to a group of twelve people. Really, you're talking to twelve individuals or fourteen individuals. You need to have eye contact and you need to relate. And I can't guarantee you, but I'm sure that when I was talking about radar. I was looking at the pilot. He right. was standing well, right in front of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so he could go back in the jury room. What, what I try to do is enlist these jurors 
to become our advocates back in the jury room when they're arguing with the people who might be against us right. and give them the ammunition that they need to put to rest the arguments that the defense might be making. Right, you've got to empower the ones who are, who are exactly. for you so that when they're arguing to the ones who might be uh, against you or, not, or at least not uh, leaning in your favor, that they can make those points Exactly, and I should have uh, corrected this when you were making the introductions and I've been wanting to correct it up to now. <laughs> But you were talking about all these cases I've won and that sort of thing. Many times I have told the audience when I was introduced, they're about to hear from the lawyer who's lost more good cases than any lawyer in the country. And that's true because I started off in my early years believing that justice was there for everybody, suing the only board certified pediatrician in a town of 12 or 13,000. Right. And then in 1982, I tried a case, Roy Barnes was on the other side in Atlanta, and it wasn't nearly as strong as the, a lot of the cases I lost, and I got a $500,000 verdict. You know, and I said, there must be something different about proving a doctor's a butcher in a metropolitan area and proving he's a butcher in a community that don't have but one butcher. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's right. <laughs> a light went off in my head. <laughs> so that gravitated me to Atlanta. Yeah. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Well, you mentioned in your introduction of Dad that um, when you first came to Georgia, you didn't know anybody and you had heard of him. And then you learned how approachable he was. And um, and I think the jurors really see that. Yeah. He exudes that. Uh, your your listeners can't see this, but he's six foot four and for most of his life hovered between 280 and 300 pounds. So he's a big, imposing uh, figure right. that can be very intimidating. And he's uh, and I can tell you that uh, you don't want to be cross examined by him. Um, and I have been. Uh, many times <laughs> when you were a kid i'm sure and you had right. done something bad <laughs> even still right <laughs> yeah even still uh but at the same time he knows how to do it in a way where the audience whoever they may be that are watching him try to get to the truth out of the mouth of the person that he's talking to is not ever upset with him well if my boys have ever done anything that's really 
uh, upsetting to me. Adam could tell you that my prefatory remarks are, help me understand how it is. <laughs> I don't want that question because you know right. there's really no good explanation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got a little scared just hearing it, like I was in trouble. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, I wanted to talk about another part of this case um, that, that uh, is a little bit further down, but and I, I may pronounce this wrong, but uh, from what I took in, in the case was that the there was a procedure that could have been done that from your side uh, would have saved Brooks' liver, and that was called a Kasai uh, right. procedure. And it uh, might have. It might right, and and that that was what I found really interesting uh, was when you were in your opening statement said that in eighty percent of the time uh, the Kasai people with Kasai procedure still need to get a liver transplant. But that means that 20% of the time, you know, people don't have to get a liver transplant. But that's still, you know, just from a, you know, proving your case and a causation argument. And I know the defense was all over that point. Uh, that seems like a, a, a tough argument to make that, that you're only talking 20% of the time that this is going to be successful and you wouldn't need a liver transplant. I mean, I'm just wondering how you went about addressing that. But, but, you, but you would need a liver transplant maybe in five years. Right. You know, so the whole thing was, because I procedure or not, you're going to need a liver transplant. Right. You know, and whatever the standard of care dictated that she get, they missed the opportunity, whatever it was. Right, so they, so I, 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 I put it back in their lap, if you will. Yeah, they, they took away that twenty percent chance by making sure that right. they, yeah, right. And that was a big battleground area of this case, um, and there were some of the finest doctors in the country on both sides of this issue. There's to say, it didn't make any difference if you believe that everybody screwed up and deprive this child of an earlier diagnosis and earlier treatment because she was going to have to have a liver transplant anyway. And we were we were faced with the statistical data that showed, you know, what happens with children that get the Kasai procedure. But no statistic is unique to the individual. There, as you know, statistics are statistics. So right. one thing that we that was absolutely true is that an earlier diagnosis sooner is better for the outcome. And um, I'm trying to remember the evidence, but my memory is that it, an earlier diagnosis before the bile ducts had disintegrated um, would have made the Kasai uh, more successful and preserved her liver for much longer, even up to about 20 years of age before she would have needed a liver transplant if she ever had to have one. And if they had diagnosed it even earlier, such as when she was still in the hospital before she ever left the day she, you know, the, within the few days of being born, uh, there was some testimony that more likely than not she would have never needed a liver transplant. And so <clears throat> that was the, the real battleground in this case. Uh, another issue was the longer she was able to live her life with her native liver before having to undergo a transplant and take anti-rejection drugs which suppress your immune system, 
the longer time she would have had available to develop a healthy immune system. So as an infant undergoing a liver transplant, her immune system was always um, undeveloped and immature. And so to this day, Brooke has to walk a tightrope between um, infections that might just make you and me sick that could be deadly to her or rejecting the, the transplanted liver that she has. So the longer she could have gone without having had a liver transplant, the better chance she would have had of never having to have one, and the longer she would have had to develop an immune system where her, where her own body could, could fight off things that would make you and me sick that might kill her now. There's another thought that's probably worthwhile for you listeners. Um, we had one of the finest experts from a credential standpoint that you could have come to come from California to testify. And we met with him the night before we had dinner and we had all our team together and him. We went over the case and he expressed his opinions and all that. And at one point in time, he had not testified much, if ever. And at one point in time, he said, well, I want you to know I'm going to be with you, you know, the whole way. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. I said, doctor, forget that. Don't be trying to help me. Right. Don't be trying to help Ms. Yamada. You fight to the death for your opinions that you've already expressed. So be focused on your opinions, not on the impact that they have. Right. Because a jury will take those opinions. And I think that that's what you ought to tell all your experts. You know, that uh, if they sit up there and they've said something that they think might get them in trouble with you, you know, they got that worry on their mind and stuff like that. But he was fantastic on the stand. And and by the way, I can remember in that trial, I, I, and I've done it in many trials, but I got the uh, flip chart, you know, the whiteboard, and put it up there by the witness stand. And I went over and stood between the jury box and the witness, and I would write the major, major points, <clears throat> even in my poor penmanship. Yeah. But the jury could get it. And, and everybody that tries cases, certainly if you don't know it, you ought to know it. There's jurors remember much more what they see and what they hear. Mm -hmm. So if you can get some visual thing to go with your conversation, you know, you're going to be way ahead. Yeah, we talked. Another important yeah. point, of it, his name was Dr. Levine, and um, from San Diego, one of the finest in the country and one of the wor really world's leading experts on the liver, the pediatric liver. And... Um, he was a retained expert, but he had actually evaluated um, uh, Brooke. So that enhanced, I think, enhanced his credibility because he had he had responsibility for the decisions that he was making and the opinions that he formed because these parents were relying on that. Unlike the hired gun defense uh, right. experts that were brought in that had never met this family, didn't know what kind of people they were, didn't know what kind of parents Brooke had and didn't have any responsibility for whether their opinions were right or wrong. How old was uh, Brooke when y'all went to trial? She was at least two, from my I memory. think about two. Adam asked one of the jurors how they decided on the amount of money. Do you remember what they told you? No. 
<laughs> well, your daddy put three numbers up there for us, and we took the one in the middle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, 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 we. You know, we've had a lot of discussion about that because, you know, there's this uh, theory in psychology about, you know, the way, you know, things get priced to sell. You know, they'll, they'll put one TV that's really expensive, one TV that's really cheap, and, you know, 70% of the people will pick the one right in the middle. Um, and so it's uh, always a, a, always just a good technique is to, uh, is to give people choices and then, you know, know where they're going to go. And, and so I, this is my memory of damages in the case and you know one of the challenges of course was was she going to need a liver transplant anyway so could you collect for the costs associated with a right liver transplant well by the time we got to trial i think brooke was about two years old so in her first two years of life her past medical expenses were more than five hundred thousand wow. and um you know and she had already had the liver transplant of course well, you can't recover future medical damages unless you can prove that they will be incurred with reasonable specificity, the amount and, and when. And, um, and that's, that's very difficult in this kind of case because, as I said, Brooke, even as of this moment, still um, faces the possibility of rejecting and having, undergo and having that liver removed that she now has and undergoing another transplant and maybe another one after that right. for the rest of her life and so that is not sufficient the possibility of having to undergo another transplant in the future the mere possibility of it is not sufficient to be able to recover medical expenses to cover that um, but the jury got to hear that that might happen um, and so and and the worry associated with well will I have the resources available Will there be somebody that can help uh, with the expenses uh, associated with that procedure if it were to happen? And even if I take the best care of myself that I possibly can, it still may happen. And so I believe it's those kinds of issues which permit the jurors to look at what the medical expenses really are as of that date. Uh, they had some figure for what the reasonably certain medical expenses were to be in the future but also this tremendous unknown of potential complications that goes into the worry and the anxiety uh, that a person has to live with over the rest of their life. And that's, that's the real value of general damages in cases like this, is to provide for that. I think that um, one thing we haven't really focused on uh, was, and I think Dr. Levine was the one that um, explained it best, if they had done the imaging of the child in the hospital, they could have gone in and removed the cyst, and then there never would have been a need for a CASI procedure, never would have been a liver transplant. It would have flowed properly. Right. And that was the big opportunity that was missed. Yeah, and that was the earliest standard of care mistake right. uh, that was made. And so that makes the most sense and the easiest thing for the jury to understand. Yeah, and, and there were many opportunities down the way that if you take those facts as presented at that time, then there are other potential causation defenses that can arise, you know, but um, um, the jury got it. And they, the defense, of course, wanted to bring up things um, like she would have needed the transplant anyway, but, and, and that there was no, there was no, there were no controlled studies um, of patients who they let their liver on purpose get sicker 
to right. see how more successful an earlier Kasai would be before they let it get sick. The, the jury just got it yeah. that the longer you permit the bile flow to be obstructed from the liver and the more the longer it's permitted to back up and poison the liver, the sicker the liver gets. Right. So the earlier you save it, the more likely uh, for um, a positive outcome. But you can't prove any of these things with 100% certainty. It's right. more likely than not. Right, exactly, exactly. I wanted to talk a little bit about your jury selection in that case because I was thinking about this uh, sort of concept of, you know, when I read your opening that this case sort of came down to just this complete lack of communication and, um, and a breakdown in communication between these different specialties, and that's why Brooke was left without getting the cyst removed or the Kasai procedure earlier or what have you. Um, did you develop those themes in your jury selection like you know in your own jobs if you don't communicate with your coworkers, things go wrong did, did you yeah, do some think, of those things i think i would have asked are there, are there policies published policies and procedures do you have routines that you follow you know is it important to follow those routines um the the way the jury selection uh, the procedure that we followed in that case was uh, we probably had about 60 jurors. Uh, this case was being tried in an era um, and in a climate of a lot of talk about tort reform and doctors leaving the state, which was not true, but people believed there might be no obstetrician in the hospital to deliver your baby because of greedy lawyers like us suing them. Yeah, I didn't think about that. This was right after George's tort reform was passed. Well, it's right during it. Or during it, yeah. Um, before it got passed but you know there was lots of propaganda in the air about this yeah. we had more jurors brought in than we ordinarily would so that the judge would have the opportunity to excuse people who already had their minds made up on certain issues like these kinds of cases um, without running the risk of not having enough jurors at the end of the process to try the case so all the lawyers asked general questions to the entire group um, where they were told to respond if the if the question applied to them by raising an auction paddle with their number on it okay. um, and that was a, a procedure that dad and I brought to the Fulton County Courthouse in some previous trial and then all the other judges in the state court at least adopted that and we gave them all auction paddles mm -hmm. um, so that they could use those then we uh, would go we all moved to the jury room and each juror was called back individually to be questioned outside the presence of the others to follow up on their responses to the general questions um, and that took some time but we had a jury by the end of the first day but it took all day and one of the defense lawyers uh, asked every single juror and, and most all of them were uh, college educated uh, with advanced and even with advanced degrees. But one of the defense lawyers thought it important to their case for some reason to ask every single juror about their ma college mascot. And they really didn't ask. They would say, you went to so-and-so, and so you're a, you know, a bulldog, or you're a tiger, or a war eagle, or you're a this, or you're a that. Double dog. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the... What's Duke? I can't remember. Or the Blue Devils. Well, what's UNC? Devil, devil Demon. Demon Devil. The Demon Deacons. Okay. All right. You can see Dad, Dad, Dad and I aren't as up on the college mascots as they were, but maybe that was their way of trying to create a bond.
yeah. with right, each right. of these jurors. Um, so I'll make two points. Um, uh, one is you can take the things that the defense lawyers say and use them to your advantage at any point in the trial process. And while it was most irritating, I think, to the judge and the other defense lawyers and certainly to Dad and me, that we were taking up time to ask these jurors about their college mascots when Dad was given the opening statement uh, and got to the part where he wanted to explain the burden of proof, uh, which was preponderance of the evidence. He reminded the jurors that uh, uh, we spent an awful lot of time talking about college mascots and uh, right. football yeah. and, and sporting events in college. So let me just use that in explaining what it means to meet the burden of proof. Imagine the football field and the 50-yard line. We start on the 50-yard line, and in order to carry our burden of proof, all we need to do is move the ball across the 50. We don't yeah. have to score a touchdown. And so he was able to take that. Now, we had our pediatrician expert on the witness stand during the evidence phase of the trial. And uh, Dad was asking, his name was Dr. Trotter. Dad asked Dr. Trotter a question, which was a very important one. And I don't remember the question or what the answer was. The question was designed to elicit. But the defense lawyer that had spent all that time asking about college mascots jumped up and said... He's in the back of the courtroom. Yeah, he was out. He was behind the bar on the other side closer to the jury box because there was probably some demonstrative that, that was being was used at. it's <laughs> and so uh dad is intensely focused on what's happening between him and the witness and the jury at the time and all of a sudden this objection comes screamed out screamed <laughs> i object to this demon deacon blah 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 <laughs> and of course i had remembered i i'm sitting at the table i remembered oh that's that's his college mascot well dad didn't remember the demon deacons from true demons you know? <laughs> right. and, and that, in that moment he looked at the judge and said i move that you immediate this court immediately hold mr so-and-so in contempt of this court for <laughs> right. insulting this witness and calling him a demon and the jury started laughing and everybody started laughing <laughs> forgot what the objection was and right. the trial went on but all these cases have moments of levity and that was one of them yeah exactly well, um and I, one of the things i thought was interesting tommy in reading the book about you that i think a lot of newer lawyers don't realize is that um is how different voir dire used to be. I, I don't want to get us too off track, but I, I, I think it'd be great to hear you talk a little bit about when you were first starting out, how there was this school of thought that you didn't want jurors to feel like they were being examined during voir dire. Yeah, every lawyer that I went and talked to, every lawyer, my father, who had been the prosecuting attorney in the misdemeanor court for over 20 years, uh, Peter Zach Gear. Uh, uh, just top lawyers, they all said, no, you don't ask the jurors any questions. They'll get mad because they think you're putting them on trial. Now, if you think about it, not voidiring helps the power structure stay in power. That's right. And if you voidire, you can get people that can be fair or they'll have to lie, you know, in order to, you know, w would you give a different amount because of the color of somebody's skin? Well, they either got to lie or they got to commit that they're going to be fair, you know, one or the other. And uh, they didn't ask those questions. Well, I lost my first case 
for this African-American family, the black cases mentioned in the book. And she called me the other day, by the way, and uh, wanted me to endorse her, uh, autograph a couple of books. And she <laughs> said, Tommy, I just want you to know that we so much appreciated you representing us. We never thought we had any chance of winning, <laughs> but just to be an African-American family in a courtroom being represented by a white lawyer, you know, meant more to us than we can even tell you now. And he ultimately was president of Albany State College, and I was on the board of trustees, and you know, we were very, very, very close. Yeah, yeah that's great. Well, so when did that start to change, where, where people started to come around on, on Vaudeir to have a conversation with jurors? Well, my career and the Voting Rights Act, which led to people being on the jury, but they, you know, they were giving tests and stuff. And I mean, just because the, I started practicing in 66 in Southwest Georgia, they were marching in the streets in Albany in 64 and 65 to get the right to vote. Well, once you got the right to vote, the next step was getting on the jury. Right. And not that many people even pushed to be on the jury. You know, they might've pushed to get the right to vote, but over the years, and even, um, I'm gonna brag about him a little bit, but I think it was, oh, 20 years ago or something, I got a $6 million verdict in Albany, and uh, it was against the local hospital. And um, that remained the top verdict by far, way and above anybody else's, for 10 or 12 years. And Adam goes down there with his Harris case and just kicks me out to nothing. <laughs> I, think, I think that was a $24.5 million verdict to, that right. I remember. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, that, and that was for a young man, young African-American man in Albany, Georgia, who lost his leg below the knee. So it was a below-the-knee amputation that got that kind of money. So that would have been a wonderful verdict anywhere. Oh, that's mm -hmm. a fantastic mm -hmm. verdict. Well, and I guess if I, somebody's going to beat your record, at least it's, <laughs> yeah, at least yeah. it's your son. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what I would say about that is uh, it's wonderful to represent nice, deserving people, Absolutely. first of all, um, because you can't get recoveries like that for people that don't deserve it. Yeah. Um, but the second thing, and I think is an important point, and is that I did the best I was capable of doing in, in the trial of that case and, uh, and all the pretrial stuff. But it's not lost on me uh, and shouldn't be lost on our whole generation of lawyers that the success that we are able to accomplish today is because we stand on the shoulders of people like Dad and his generation that took the chances and lost the cases that shouldn't have been lost to turn society around to recognizing that those who do wrong should be held responsible for it and not excused for it. And they start to recognize that when we let wrongdoers off the hook, somebody still got to pay for it. And that's either going to be the innocent person that, uh, that had the horrible thing happen to them, which isn't fair, I hope by anybody's definition of fairness, or the responsibility falls on the rest of us. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I, mean, I think the, we've come around. The, I mean, that is absolutely uh, uh, true. And, you know, when I talk to my kids, I always try to explain, you know, how moments in history, how at that time, you know, they were doing something that, that nobody had ever done before. Like when you think about the founding fathers, for instance, that, you know, they were they were rebels, you know, they were they were 
setting up this whole new government and it's hard to sometimes get that across but I mean that's what every generation needs to understand about the generations that come before them is that hopefully every generation moves society forward in some manner you know and well you mentioned in in my introduction my experience with the Nestle Hut case and um, the overturning of caps in Georgia on on damages and I really viewed that as a politician's attempt to silence the voice of the people yeah. in the jury box. And uh, newspapers from all over the country called me about the Supreme Court's decision when it came out holding that that law violated our constitutional uh, inviolate right to trial by jury. And I just remember saying that while the Bill of Rights has uh, there are 10, you know, and we have an, a number of amendments to our U.S. and Constitution and our state Constitution controls state issues. What it means most fundamentally to me to be an American is that we must at all costs preserve three rights that all have to do with the soapbox, the ballot box, and the jury box. Right. And, as, and, and, as, and, and without those three rights, the right of free speech, the right to vote, and the right to speak from a jury box, um, we lose the ability to self-govern. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to bring us back, and we, you know, we, I, we've talked a lot about the Yamada case, but I did want to talk a little bit about some of the themes that you developed in the case and, and how you went about developing some of those themes. And some of the themes that I noticed in the opening uh, was this uh, uh, corporate medicine that this was this was corporate medicine and it re and, and Adam has already said this but it it really does go back to you know there w there was a time when you got followed by a doctor and that doctor stayed with you no matter what and so that doctor even if they didn't have a medical record still knew what the issues were for their patient and that's changed that's clearly changed um, and um, and so I wanted to talk about how you developed those um, uh, themes, and then I also uh, noticed, and I, I thought this was a, a, a great theme, uh, with particularly with the hospital that was involved, that they had held themselves out as the you know the best birthing place maybe in the world uh, to have a baby. Uh, that the that they were in the baby birthing business. I noticed that that was uh, that one of your themes. How did you all go about developing some of the themes for this case? I think it's my intimate awareness of the evolution of medicine, you know, over my career, you know, the evolution of um, jurors, you know, who gets to sit on a jury and void eye, all these things um, combine to help me develop a theme. But the theme is going to be a succinct statement of something that I can convey to the jury that causes us, if accepted, we win. You know, so um, I don't. I don't think we. <laughs> I know Adam. Uh, uh, I'm so proud of him, but he goes to trial lawyers college. He goes all over the country and learns from all these other people. And we may get to that at, if we get to the Sutton case. Yeah. But um, I don't. I don't do that. You know, I kind of do what comes natural for me, and. Um, uh, it's just, for example, one of the people he goes to, they call them uh, pitfalls or holes or something, you know, it's, uh, 
it's a problem with a case. Right. But they've got a new language that they use, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's so that all the old folks like me that don't know about the pitfalls in the case or the, they call, they call them something else, but you know. Landmines? Landmines. Landmines, <laughs> Land that's what go. it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Things that if the judge or jury believes to be true, you will lose your case. Right. You should right. know if there are any landmines in your case. You yes. should. Yes. We call them problems. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, we like to call them warts around the office, yeah. you know, yeah. if there's okay. warts on the case. Mm -hmm. but, uh... mm -hmm. Well, in, in this, in the Yamada case, I think the theme developed, you know, um, and was crystal clear by the time we got to trial. You know, we didn't begin with the corporate medicine theme. What we really, what we started with was, um, we filed a lawsuit against the pediatricians. Those were the only defendants that were involved to start with because those are the ones that didn't follow up on the and perform the ultrasound and then gave Mina the runaround, you know, for several months um, of Brooke's life. Yeah, Adam, let me interrupt and just say this. My approach to filing lawsuits has always been to shoot with a rifle, not a shotgun. Right. Yeah. You know, but um, sometimes they have to be exceptions. Go ahead. And just for our listeners, sometimes uh, when we say shoot with a rifle and not a shotgun, some, sometimes people refer to shotgun complaints where you just sort of sue everybody who's possibly touched that case in any way. Just, you know, and then you'll figure out that you'll narrow it down at some point to the, the right defendants. And that's sometimes referred to as a shotgun uh, bias. Right. When you're that's, referring that's to, what I meant. Right, exactly. And I've often said, you know, that there are different approaches to handling these cases and yeah. some very good lawyers shoot with shotguns. It's just that I was trained by dad and, um, and he has always shot with a rifle. So our approach is we decide based on our review of the medical records, who is at fault, file our lawsuit against that person or that corporation. And sometimes we do initially file a lawsuit against more than one because we, we, we can see though there's going to be blame or there's going to be this or that that's going to arise. Um, but it seemed most clear to us that the pediatricians were the ones uh, who were supposed to diagnose this cyst and didn't. So we've, we filed the lawsuit against them. Well, it was at the very first deposition of Dr. Winter. And of course, we didn't know because it's not documented in Brooks' medical record why he sort of went missing in action. We learned there that he was gone because he had his own surgery. But in that deposition, when he failed to take responsibility for doing what it seemed was very clear had to be done based on the plan that was clearly documented in the prenatal chart, he said nobody told him. And so, well, whose fault was that? Well, it's either the obstetricians or it's the hospital. So recognizing that, if you don't add the hospital and the obstetricians right. to the party, then you go to trial and there's two huge empty chairs sitting there for the pediatrician to point at right. as, and have the jury conclude, well, you sued the wrong person because perhaps they could have believed that he was a victim too. I think we would have lost if we hadn't added him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's certainly with the way they, nobody was taking responsibility and then saying, well, that's not our job. It's somebody else's. I mean, yeah, you have to. And they can all make a good argument that it's the other person's fault. Yeah, yeah. And another thing you wouldn't know from reading the transcript or even having been there and watched the trial uh, is that at the time that this obstetrical group in the hospital were named, 
uh, as additional defendants in this lawsuit. Uh, my dad had his third grandchild on the way, which was my third child. Right. The pregnancy of which was being followed by the very obstetrical group that we had to sue. Oh my goodness. And was going to be born at the very hospital that we were suing. Oh man. So after the verdict was returned, um, we well, and were, Debbie went to that same group. And my stepmother was uh, treated at that same obstetrical group. So after the verdict was returned, uh, we were all invited to go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that sometimes that goes with the territory sometimes. And that's a sad commentary, you know, on mm -hmm. uh, what it's like. But that's, that's modern, but that's exactly how it was in Albany when I started. Right. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't have ever treated me. And there was one that wouldn't treat my daddy, you know. It wouldn't treat your daddy because of the cases you were taking? Right. Right. Yeah. Didn't want anything to do with us. You know, and I told you Mina was a communications major. She was the last witness to testify in our case in chief. And I put her up, and it was Friday, and she went on the stand at 9 o'clock that morning, and she testified the entire day. She was the wow. only witness um, to testify. But she had a lot that needed to be discussed. She had kept a journal, a very detailed journal, of everything that had happened um, with Brooke. Again, this was her first child, you know, so she's recording everything. So she's keeping that as this, as she's having these problems once as Brooke's home. As things are coming up and what she's being told and what's wrong with Brooke and uh, how confused she is and she doesn't know what to do. And it's, it was a... It was as if a movie was being played right in front of you that turned out to be a horror movie. And of course, you know what's going to happen because you've been told in the opening statement, but to, but to hear it page by page with her ability to communicate um, was very gripping. Um, oh, and we tell all of our clients that when they're testifying, have eye contact with different jurors. Right. Yeah. That's something that lawyers ought to tell their clients. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Talk to them, not at them. Yes. Yeah. And she did. She connected with all of them. And they loved her. She had uh, her truth to tell. Yeah. And, um, and she was heard. And you could see that she was being heard. And she was being heard also by a defense counsel on the other side of the courtroom because the day ended... And nobody asked her any questions was, on cross-examination. I, I was wondering that. I was going to yeah. ask, yeah. yeah. And we left for the weekend. And over the weekend, the pediatrician and the hospital uh, contacted us and decided to pay what our demand had been and leave the case. So when we showed up, you should have seen the courtroom with all three of them there, with all their files and their boxes and their P army of people. The courtroom looked almost empty right. on Monday morning when the jury showed up, so much so that the confused look on their face uh, caused us to ask the judge to tell the jury that, um, and this this is what Dad asked the judge to tell the jury, and the, and the remaining defense lawyer agreed that it was okay, um, that the hospital and the obstetricians um, at the end of the day Friday um, have elected to leave the lawsuit <laughs> <laughs> and so we continued the rest of the trial against um, against the obstetrical group Wow 
Yeah, and I saw that in there because I, I, in your closing, I saw it. I can't remember how exactly you referred to it, but it um, was something to the effect of, uh, you know, the other two have stopped there denying and, you know, and taking responsibility or something to that effect. And uh, we still have this one group left. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and I, I was going to ask a question about that. I mean, how, how, was, how did that change things for you to try the case and losing two of your defendants, obviously, you know, for them paying your uh, settlement? It didn't okay. because we had maintained all along that all three of them were responsible. Right, right. I think it helped. Because yeah. Two of them have admitted it, yeah. one of them still denied right. it. That yeah. was the message I believe that sent to the jury was, especially with the way the testimony ended the Friday before. Yeah. Right, ending on that note and then coming back into the defendants aren't there anymore. And your role as jurors is beyond this case. Whatever you decide will affect the future of other patients. Yeah. And, you know, that's the message. The hospital needs to know that they ought to put in the baby's chart any significant information from the mother's chart. I would have assumed that was always done. I right. mean, that's why these cases just scare me. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's and, and it's exactly what you were saying. I, I actually I don't have a case where my client was a 17-year-old mother, and and uh, and she was told there was nothing wrong with her child. She needed to leave. And one of the things they said is, well, she should have pressed it. And I'm sitting there thinking, she's 17. I mean, you know, what 17-year-old is going to stand up to a nurse or a doctor telling you that uh, everything's fine? You know, everything's home. yeah. One other complicating fact that I don't think we've mentioned is. The OB that she saw regularly when she went to the obstetrical practice, she was on vacation or something, and one of her partners actually delivered the baby. So the one that delivered the baby, she didn't have any direct relationship with anyway. So sort of this recurring theme, not only with the pediatricians, but with the, o the OBGYNs as well, that they just sort of were putting in substitutes. Yeah, had, had her doctor that knew her and cared about her and anybody that knows her, loves her, that doctor may have gone down there and done something about putting that information in the baby's record. You know, but the one that just came in to deliver the baby, once the baby's healthy, she's done. I think the picture the jury had in their mind of what happened in this case, and it, uh, it probably scared them about what happens in all the cases, it's just that they usually get away with it without something bad happening, is the image of what an assembly line looks like. Exactly. And if you've got an assembly line worker, and Lord knows we need them, but you really can't expect assembly line workers to think about what happened before the product appeared in front of them and what's going to happen with it after it leaves them, but to only be thinking about what do they need to do to do the job they're being paid to do in that moment. Yeah. And that's the way, and professionals should not practice that way. Mm -hmm. They're not assembly line workers, but that's exactly the system that was set up for Brook Yamada in this case. And so the obstetrician covering for the regular obstetrician that was gone on vacation thought about what I need to do today to deliver a healthy mom and baby. Yeah. And then she was done. You know, I hate she, to even think this, much less say it, but um, I think the jury needs to understand that their role is bigger than just in that courtroom, that they oh, yeah. have an impact. Some might refer to it as the reptile theory. Right. Right. Uh, I don't like that term, you know, and I wouldn't refer to it as that. I think it's doing the right thing yeah. that goes beyond the courtroom, not that other. And, you know, there's no way to confirm these things, but what we were told after this verdict was returned is that Northside changed their policies about how they handle medicine. Um, 
And that probably meant more to this family and yeah. to us than the amount of the verdict. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I think as trial lawyers, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, my sense of being a trial lawyer is we love helping people, love helping them in, in these terrible times. But if you can make real change, it's going to affect people in the future. I mean, that's the, that's the greatest benefit that you can have doing what we do. Well, I think we've taken up a lot of your time on, on the Yamada case, and, uh, and we certainly appreciate it. And again, I just want to remind everybody that we're talking to Tommy and Adam Malone of Malone Law, and if you want to look them up, they're at MaloneLaw.com. Thank you very much. We enjoyed being here. We have enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope we make a difference. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. And we only really want five-star reviews. Uh, you know, if, if you have something less than a five-star, don't feel like you have to rate yeah, or review us. We have, we have no integrity. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. Uh, she uh, is a... Uh, magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. Um, and this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>